question tonight. What what uh, town was Jesus born in? Dunsburg. <laughs> <laughs> you you win a penny. <laughs> no, it wasn't Dunsburg. It was Bethlehem. Amen. Bethlehem, out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. Micah 5 2. Old little town of Bethlehem. We'll sing all four verses. Hymn number 250, if you're not turned there yet. <clears throat> oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see. swallow when you're supposed to be saying a word in the song that happens to me often <laughs> second verse for Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above while mortals sleep the angels keep their watch of Pastor preached on Emmanuel this morning. Amen. Our next song is hymn number 265, The First Noel. Now, that's six verses, so I'm going to take a deep breath before we start. And I'm probably going to mess up a little bit on some of them, like the second, third, and fourth verse. But uh, I told uh, Joanne, if I mess up, just keep playing like it ought to be. I'll catch her later. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the wording is trickier for me, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with the words. It's me, okay? But anyway, the first Noel, hymn number 265, anybody didn't hear me, but Luke 211 tells us, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The first Noel. <laughs> The first Noel the angel did say was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay in 
be seated. I got to preach a little bit. That uh, last verse talking about his blood and purchased and bought, that blessed my heart. And uh, then I entered in uh, over Bethlehem. It took its rest. Talking about the star. And there it did both stop. Now that's a miracle in itself, ain't it? Moving that star right over the manger. Praise the Lord. I, ain't, I wasn't going to stop jail. He's done preached 
he preached three sermons today. I only got one in, I think. <laughs> I'm grateful for you, JL, and I'm grateful for those songs, too. If you notice, as I said this morning before we started singing Christmas carols, you know, I said it last week in the sermon that when it comes to singing, we ought to think about what we're singing. We shouldn't just sing blindly. We shouldn't do anything in church without thinking about it. We ought to think the Lord's given us a mind for a reason and hearts to, to, to believe what we're singing. Uh, we shouldn't sing it if we don't believe it, right? And then we ought to sing like we believe it. Um, but with that, uh, so much, just what we saw tonight in these two songs, I thought we were going to have to take a halftime in that last one, though. <laughs> but, but when you get to that last verse, I mean, to think that both, both songs ending off with the fact and, and the reason why Jesus came. He didn't just come. Oh, hey, there we go. Let's see. <laughs> he didn't just come to, to be born and to give us a reason to put up Christmas trees or, or give presents away or anything like that. He he came to save us from our sin. And so we were reminded, yes, of our sinfulness, but we're reminded even more so of, uh, of Jesus' goodness and his kindness to us. So tonight, um, what I want to do is we've got some missionaries who are stopping in tonight. They didn't have anywhere to go tonight. Uh, it wasn't that there was no room in the inn for them. They've got a place to stay, all right? We don't want to say that. Uh, but uh, they didn't have a church that they were at tonight, and I, I guess they saw our big billboard or something. I don't know what they did, but uh, they asked somebody, I guess, and they found us. And so tonight we got uh, Zach with us and his sweet family. And um, uh, so I'm going to let him come and take a few minutes, introduce himself and the ministry that he's got. So y'all welcome and make him a round, round of applause. Make him feel welcome. Thank you so much, preacher. Thank you, church, uh, for giving us a few minutes to be able to tell y'all. Like he said, my name is Zach. That's my wife, Kelly. And then we have Cullen, Amber, and Bexley, and Perrin. And I don't expect y'all to remember that. I don't remember it half the time. Uh, but I did come up with nicknames for them. I call them Weeping, Wailing, and Gnashing of Teeth. And then the baby I call Wars and Rumors of Wars. I tried to stay biblical. So, But uh, if y'all read that in scripture, remember to pray for the Newsom's family. And uh, God has called us to go to England, and uh, primarily to the city of Newcastle is where we're looking at. And Newcastle is about 350,000 people. It's up in the northeast, and in the surrounding towns and villages, you have over a million people, and there's not one single church that preaches the gospel to any of those people. And so whenever you, I say England, you, know, you think of a lot of things. You think about a country that had the gospel, a country that was a powerhouse with the gospel and took it all over the world. You think about uh, the hymn, the last hymn that we sung was an English hymn. Uh, the hymn, a lot of hymns that we sing were written in English. Think about the men that we read after, the pastors and preachers of yesteryear. A lot of those were English preachers and pastors. Think about the King James Bible that we have. It was commissioned to be put into print by England. And so that's not the case anymore, though. England is not that place. England is a wasteland. It is, it is desolate of all spirituality. There's about 10 or 15 churches of like faith in the entire country. So that's about 6 million people for each church to reach. And so how does a church or how does a country get to the place where they had everything going for them and now they have 10 or 15 churches in the whole country? How, how, does, a, how does a country get that way? They came to the place where they became comfortable with the presence of God. They became, no longer were they sensitive to the movement of God. No longer did they, they care about the Holy Spirit. No longer did they care about people getting saved. They got cold and complacent on the things of God. And uh, it says in Scripture that Samson, he, he got up and he wished not that the Spirit had departed from him. And that's what happened to England. They got up, they, they did they, what they did every single day, and they didn't even have any idea that the, the Spirit of God had departed. And so it's a humbling thing that a, a country that had that kind of power, uh, God chastised. And if God can do that to England, he can do that to America. And my friends, we are right behind England uh, in our spiritual degradation and the, the, the choices that we are making. We are following England. And so the Lord could come back at any time, but if he tarries for 50 years, will we be in the same place that England's at now? In 50 years, will there be 10 or 15 churches in this whole country? That's a good question. I pray that we don't let it get that way. I pray that we take a stand because as much as I love the English people, and I do love the English people, and I wish I could explain that. I don't even understand it myself, uh, but I know it's a love that God has placed in my heart for those people. 
That doesn't mean that I don't want to see Americans get saved. You know, I, don't, I want to see people in Virginia get saved. So if you don't mind, could you pray for us as we're on deputation to go and reach the people of England and, uh, and be God's missionaries there? And I will pray for you guys here as you are reaching the people of Virginia and the people of the, of the U.S. Because just as much as we're missionaries there, you guys are missionaries here. And that's the beauty of the body. We can't all be and do the same thing, but with together, partnering together through prayer, uh, we can accomplish something great for God. And so I thank you, preacher, for the time. And I'm going to get out of the way and let you get back to what you're doing. Thank you. God bless you, sir. All right. Well, grateful uh, for our brother to come and, and to share as well. Uh, and so much truth uh, in, in what he had to say about the state of, of England and so many others, so many nations and uh, what we would consider to be Western nations, I suppose, uh, Western European places where we've come from, our ancestry and things like that, that at one point or time were the, the powerhouses of the gospel. It seemed as if that was where the light had gone and then it sort of has come our way. And now it's seemingly, as he said, is, is moving away. But nevertheless, we trust that the gospel still works, and uh, we're certainly going to be praying for you and, and grateful uh, to, uh, to have you with us tonight and grateful to, to think about what God can do there. Um, you know, there's been great awakenings that have come out of there, many great revivals and, and uh, even reformations that have come out of there, and, and, and we would love to see uh, the Lord use you guys uh, to, to be a part of that. So uh, take your Bible with me tonight. Turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. We're going to be finishing up the Psalm tonight, looking at verses 23 through 31. And uh, we'll, we'll sort of do a, a quick little recap uh, as we've been going through the, the past few weeks uh, of Sunday nights, looking at the first portion that we had dealt with. And we saw so much of the immediate fulfillment of David with his pain, his sorrow, his struggle that he was going through. And then the second being Jesus' ultimate fulfillment, that, that ultimately everything that we see that David went through, that though everything that David went through, uh, his highs were higher than your highs, and his lows were much lower than your lows and my lows will ever be, we find that Jesus' were all the more infinitely greater, especially when we consider Calvary, and especially when we consider the darkness of which he died, where he laid down his life for our sins, as we've sung about tonight, as we know. Uh, so tonight, uh, what I want to do is uh, I want to read the scripture, verse 23 through 31. Uh, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into things. All right, let me see what time it is. 649, all right. Uh, let us pray. Uh, no, let's read. Let's do that. That's what I said first. I don't want to lie. All right, let's read first. All right, there we go. Someone stop me if I'm getting this wrong, okay? Uh, ye that fear the Lord, praise Him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him, all ye the seed of Israel. For He hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath He hid His face from Him. But when He cried unto Him, He heard, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear Him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek Him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before Thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before Him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve Him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this night. Grateful for the songs that we could sing about Christ and his coming and the reason why he came to save sinners like us. Lord, we're grateful for your grace, your mercy, your love towards us. Uh, we're grateful to have this uh, missionary family with us tonight. Pray that you would bless them in their travels as they're raising support to, to go and, uh, to where you've called them to. We pray that you would prepare the way. Uh, pre prepare the, the, the provision for them as well, Lord. We pray even more so that you would prepare the hearts of those that they will come in contact with, that the gospel will go forth and, and would win many. Uh, Lord, we ask that tonight as we look to your word, uh, that you would teach us, that you would show us Christ, Lord, that you would uh, give us what is needed tonight. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would guard my mind, my heart, my tongue. And Lord, it be you that preaches and teaches to your people this passage, Lord. We love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so tonight, as we wrap up Psalm 22, we dealt with the first few weeks of this uh, being the, the suffering of the Savior, the man of sorrows, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, all that he went through, uh, verses 1 through 22. Uh, we dealt with much of the prophecy that was dealt with. Uh, but now we're going to be looking, and as we finish this off, and what, here's what we see. We see a song of praise. Now, after all the first 22 verses of all the, the challenges and all the, the deep pain from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, the, the feeling of, this, uh, of absolute desolation, 
the strength being dried up like a potsherd, the bones being out of joint, heart like wax, and milk in the midst of his bowels. He could tell all of his bones and look and stare upon me. Uh, all the fulfillment that we saw of his garments being parted, all these things. We, we pick up with verse 22, I will declare thy name unto thy brethren in the midst of the congregation, will I praise thee. And here it seems, as we'll get into in just a moment, this, this time now to wrap this all up, that though Christ has ultimately fulfilled this in his great and terrible suffering for us, yet we find that he died a victor and a conqueror. We find that he uh, went to the grave a victor and a conqueror and led captivity captive on his, the day of his resurrection. And what take, takes place there? He is the victor and the conqueror and has now given us the victory and called us now more than conquerors that are in Christ Jesus. And so because of this, there is a song of praise that we see uh, here that, that is for us tonight. And I believe that this should as well be a song of, of our own heart as we look to Christ, as we look to what He has done for us. Now, uh, sort of some immediate context for us just to help us out and some reminders. The immediate fulfillment is that David has faced incredibly desperate circumstances and sufferings while prophesying of one in his future lineage who will be the greater fulfillment of the painful cries of Psalm 22, 1 through 22. Now, David exhorts those here, if you will, in verses 23 through 31. He is essentially exhorting those who remain faithful to God to praise him for his great deliverance, faithfulness, and kingly rule. Now, notice this. There were times in this psalm already where David feels as if God has forsaken him, where he feels abandoned and alone and, and, and absolutely, uh, utterly just cast away from everyone. It appears that this was taking place in a time of David's life where either one, he was on the run for his life uh, from Saul or Absalom. But nevertheless, we find that he was in a desperate time in, an, in such a way, but yet his faith remained steadfast that he believed that God did hear him and he believed that God would deliver him. And for the believer, the hope is of David as well, the same, that we believe that whether uh, we, we live or die, we shall be delivered, and that, the God, that our God is the only one who can and will deliver. He has promised us deliverance. And so if we are in Christ tonight, we already have been delivered, and we are awaiting our final deliverance from this world of sin and sorrow, and we will be delivered unto His presence where we shall be with Him forevermore. Now, the future fulfillment of all this has been seen in Jesus, uh, who is the suffering servant and the promised seed who fulfilled the horror of the previous verses as he died on the cross for the sins of the world. Now, the further fulfillment that Jesus has is as well in verses 23 through 31. Uh, verses 23 through 31 is, is after the cross, all right? Think of this psalm this way. Verses 1 through 21 especially, that's, that's the cross. That's leading up to the cross. That's there on the cross but then 22 and forward would be resurrection, ascension, and in throughout eternity. But we're going to see specifically that as we look at this in these verses, I believe tonight what we're seeing is that this is going to be taking place as Christ returns, uh, as he returns after the tribulation period, as he is accepted by Israel that day. The Bible says, as I mentioned this morning in Sunday school, they'll be born in a day, according to Isaiah 66 and that he will bring in his rule and his reign in what we call the Millennial Kingdom. Now, you say, well, how do you get that far? Well, we're going to look at that tonight, and we're going to see that these cries are going to be that of a people who have been finally delivered from being absolutely feel, uh, the feeling of being utterly desolate and destroyed and, and forsaken and cast down. Remember, as we talked about this morning in Sunday school, looking at 2 Thess chapter 2, what is the tribulation period for? Well, it's not just for God to rain down judgment upon the wicked, but it is to purify His people Israel. It is to prepare them for the coming Messiah so that they would see Him, uh, the one on whom they have pierced, and that they would be born again. A, a national revival. Uh, much of which we pray for, for our own nation, for England, and for many others. But it will actually happen on that day that Christ comes back, and you and I, His church, His bride, His body, will come back with Him. As MacDonald writes, uh, by this point in the psalm, Christ has returned to earth to reign as king. The faithful remnant of the nation of Israel has entered the kingdom with all its millennial glories. The Messiah of Israel is ready to testify to his Jewish brethren about the faithfulness of God in answering his prayers in the first part of the psalm. Now Christ praises God in the midst of the congregation. The millennial kingdom is going to be doing uh, two different things. Yes, you and I, uh, the, the body and bride of Christ, who will return with him on that day. Uh, for a thousand years, you and I, uh, a part of our reward is that we will get to rule and to reign with Christ. We will be given responsibility and roles and authority over the nations and, and over the kings of the earth. We will see it replenished. We will see it uh, uh, sort of remodeled, if you will. It will be brought back to what it ought to be um, before there is one more 
uh, falling away and then final judgment and then going into the eternal kingdom there of Revelation 21 and 22. But what takes place here is specifically the tribulation period and the kingdom is once more centered around God's chosen people, the people of Israel. And so this is why, as we've said a million times, Israel is the key to end time prophecy. It is not us, it is not anyone else, but it is God continuing to fulfill his promises to them that he made to Abraham so many years ago. Uh, now, Israel, during this time of the millennial kingdom, they are going to be re-educated and they are going to be re-established properly. Now, here's what we understand. As we talked about in 2 Thess chapter 2 this morning in Sunday school, uh, the tribulation period is going to begin not with the rapture, but rather with the peace treaty with the Antichrist and those other folks uh, with Israel. Israel at that point in time will have a false peace, a false sense of security. They will have won uh, battles and victories and been protected by the Lord, and now they are entered into this place and this time where it's supposed to be that of peace. Uh, and during that time, uh, they are going to reestablish themselves and think that all is well nationally, but what takes place halfway through the tribulation period? As we talked about, the abomination of desolation, uh, essentially it is this, the Antichrist will uh, uh, sort of uh, take away that, that truce, that, that uh, peace treaty. Uh, he will set himself up and declare himself to be God, and then the Jews will be uh, utterly persecuted, and those who are faithful will flee to the mountains where the Lord himself will protect them in the caves and the hills. Now, why do we say all this? We say all this because though they think they will be reestablished and, and, and be back to a renewal uh, in the tribulation period, it will only be for a short period of time and it will not be a true return to what they are supposed to be. This will come after Christ returns. And here we find the song of praise that it will be as the Lord is praising, as the Lord Jesus Christ is praising the Lord, uh, his Father, for all that he has done in delivering him and now reconciling all things unto himself by the way of the blood of his cross. But then we find as well that this is now a time for Israel to be re-educated about who their Messiah is. And in the pronouncement of this, and in this song, if you will, what is being taught is who Christ is, what he has done, and ultimately his fulfillment, and that he is the true Messiah of God. Now, as we look at this, uh, verses 23 through 25, 26 or so, uh, it's going to be looking at, at the praise for God's response. Here we find that because God has responded in such a way to bring about deliverance to His people through Jesus, and ultimately even has delivered His Son and His suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, because of this great deliverance, now there is a time of praise. We should always praise God for His deeds, for all that He does, for all that He is. Now, that should be our response to His response. Notice this, that the response is God's in the sense that uh, from the very first cry in chapter, in chapter 22, here, Psalm 22, verse number 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From that moment all the way through verse 21 and 22, what we see is that the psalmist and ultimately Jesus is fulfilling this and his prayer to the Father, to our Heavenly Father, to our God, the God of the covenant, the God of the people of Israel, the God of those who are saved by grace through faith, what is taking place is as they cry unto Him, they are awaiting a response. They are awaiting a response. Notice in verse 19, you go back, He says, But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. And so here we find the deliverance has been brought. What deliverance? Deliverance, as we see in the future fulfillment of this as well, the deliverance from the time of Jacob's trouble. That is called the tribulation period. And so when they are delivered from that judgment and they are reinstituted, reestablished, restrengthened, renewed, reeducated, they are revived as they are born and they see Christ. Now uh, they get to rejoice in what God has done, that God in that moment and Christ's return. This is why Christ's return is so important. Not just because you and I get to uh, enjoy the benefit of the millennial kingdom, which we'll get into in a little bit, but it's that you and I get to see God finally and fully bring about the completion of His promises to His people. That is the beauty of Christ's return. And it's not really just that you and I get a, whew, all right, good, we're, we're not in hell, we made it, uh, we're not through the tribulation, we didn't have to go in the tribulation, so that's good. Right? Well, those are good things. But the best is that you and I will get first-hand encounter with watching God fulfill every jot and tittle of his word and promise to his people. Now, the fear of the Lord, notice this, he says, ye that fear the Lord, praise him. 
all ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. Notice, we are to fear him, we are to praise him, uh, we are to glorify him. Uh, these are the natural responses to, to what God has done. So when God answers prayer, what should be the natural response? Well, we ought to fear him more. You say, well, wait a minute, when God does something good for me, I should be more afraid of him? Well, that's not the idea here. The idea is that we revere him more as being the God who delivers, the God who saves. And so because of God's deliverance, because of God's salvation, I ought to grow in a holy fear and a holy reverence for who he is and not merely what he has done. Uh, the, more we, uh, the longer we are saved, the more of a, of a holiness in our life we should have, uh, the, the more we should have uh, an understanding of God, the more we should have a reverence for who He is. Uh, we should have more of a reverence for God uh, after we have been saved X amount of years when we walk into His house, when we open up His Word, when we go to Him in prayer, than we should when, when we first get saved. When we first get saved, we don't know any better. We don't know anything. We just know that we need to be saved and only He can save us. After the fact, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does growing in grace and knowledge do? It leads to the fear of the Lord. It, the fear of the Lord leads us to naturally praise Him. Think about this. What happens when Moses catches a glimpse of the glory of God? He bows his face in fear, trembling, and what does he do? Then he praises the Lord. But notice there will be no praise. There will be no glorifying Him without a fear of Him, without a faith, a trust in Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it is the beginning of worship. There is nothing more wise than to worship God. There is nothing more wise uh, th than to come to Him in fear and reverence and, and to glorify His name. Worship is the application of wisdom. It, it, is, uh, it is the way of, of faith. It is the way that we are to live. The just shall live by faith, and those who trust the Lord will have a holy fear of Him, and that would lead to a life of, of wisdom, and wisdom will express itself through worship. If there is no fear of God, then there will be no faith in God. When you find faith in God, you find the fear of the Lord. And when we find this, this is what the Bible calls wisdom, this is what the Bible calls wise living or knowledgeable living. It is what we would see as the Christian life. It is what it means from Abraham to us today to live and to walk by faith alone. Now, the outworking of the fear of God is seen in the three commands. Praise, glorify, fear, revere Him. And so, with all of this, the fear of God is not merely just one sort of simple thing, but the fear of the Lord, if you will, could be the summation of the Christian life. It is that we have a fear of the Lord established at our salvation, and our sanctification is that we grow by God's grace through faith in a deeper, higher, and wider fear of who God is. Uh, not merely a fear of a shrinking back, but rather the fear of the Lord draws us near to Him through our mediator and intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the fear of the Lord does not drive us away from Him, but rather it drives us on our knees to Him. And the closer we get to our faces uh, on the ground in worship and a holy fear of God, the higher and closer our hearts will go to His throne and to know His presence and to abide in Him. Now, as we furthermore, we see this in verse 24, he says, For he hath not despised nor bored the affliction of the afflicted. Well, the, David here, of course, has the immediate application. He goes, Though I felt forsaken, though I felt abandoned, though I felt utterly dismayed, yet God was with me. And God has answered. He has not despised uh, nor bored the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. Why? Because though God allows a suffering. He does not only allow it, He uses it for our good, for His glory. And every trial in our life, every ounce of pain in our life, every ounce of affliction in our life is to grow us in a pound of faith. Every ounce is to grow us deeper in the knowledge of Him. Everything in our life is to drive us to know Him all the more, even, and I would say even especially in times of affliction. But what we see here is that God did not abandon the afflicted or forsake Him. God remains faithful to His servant and those that trust in Him. You say, well, what about Jesus? Doesn't He cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isn't He totally and utterly abandoned by the Lord? Well, think of it this way. If He was completely abandoned by God and He had His faith, the Father turned His face away, if you will, from Christ. He felt abandoned, forsaken. He fulfills this uh, psalm. Well, what do we find though? What does the Father do? Well, it says that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all are given credit for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
the Father sees that the resurrection is the full, final, where it is a stamp of approval saying that all that Christ is and all that Christ has done is sufficient for salvation and He has fulfilled the will of the Father. He has fulfilled everything that God had sent Him to do. Aguzik writes about affliction and for this moment I wanted to look at this. He says some of God's people automatically associate all affliction with the disfavor of God. It is true that sometimes affliction may come as punishment for the unbeliever or as discipline for the believer. Yet sometimes affliction is something God does not despise and uses to good, uh, to good effect in the lives of His people. It is in this sense that the words of Isaiah 53.10 were fulfilled, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. The affliction was not despised. Oftentimes what we find is that it is affliction that drives us to have an affection for the things of God. I believe that if we go through affliction properly, biblically, and faithfully, we will find that we have a deeper devotion to the Lord our God because He has delivered us and has promised us deliverance. So even if your affliction brings you to the point of death and even delivers you to its door and through its door, we find that for the believer to be delivered through death means that we will be delivered unto life eternal. And so for the believer, death is gain. Uh, to, to, to die Merely, as we've said before, the worst thing that will happen to a Christian is you will die and go to heaven. And so we find that the affliction, though it is difficult, though it is terrible, yet God uses it and we will be delivered one way or the other. We are reminded as well in this that God hears the cries of those who call upon Him in faith and truth. And the response of the psalmist, and of course uh, Christ, and and ourselves even in this to, to a degree, He says, my praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. The response to God's faithfulness is seen in the public display of worshiping the Lord and in the private keeping of his promises, the vows to God's commands. We find that ultimately all of life is in the public. You say, well, what about my private life? What are about the things that people don't know about? Well, though no one else in the world may know about what happens in your mind, in your heart, or in your home, the Lord himself does. You always have an audience about you. It is said that we live before his face, Coram Dio, that we live before the face of God. There is not a moment in your life that is hidden from the Lord. There is not a motivation in your heart that is hidden from the Lord. There is not a... A, uh, a time in your life where God does not see you where you are, the afflictions, the victories, and everything in between, and the motivating factor of it all, He sees the depths of the human heart. He tries us. He knows us. And we see that ultimately we are not just living our life before the face of God, but as we learn that we are living our life before the face of God, we learn that we too are living our life before the face of the world as they look onwardly to see uh, if we will be the hypocrites and, and the Pharisees that they believe us to be, or the maniacs or crazy people that they believe us to be, uh, or the self-righteous, we, we see that the world is on looking, seeing if that hope truly does lie within us and that we truly believe what we say we believe and that there is a difference and a holiness about us. But then as well, the church is looking inwardly around us. We are looking to each other for hope and for, for comfort, for Uh, for strength and for endurance and for encouragement and all these things, we find that nothing we do is truly private, but ultimately all of this is in the great congregation, if you will, before God and before man. Now, in this, he says that he will keep his vows, pay my vows before them that fear him. The idea here is that he uh, is not only going to worship the Lord, but he's going to work for the Lord. But notice this, you will never work for the Lord until you learn to worship. Worship enables and empowers our works. We won't keep His Word unless we keep Him uh, in our worship, as we trust Him, as we glorify Him, as we praise Him, as we have this fear of the Lord, as we praise Him, as we glorify Him in verse 23. Unless we have verse 23 down, we'll never have verse number 25 and 26. We will never get to the place where we accomplish a single thing for the Lord or obey His commands or His vows or work for Him and accomplish anything until we get to the place where we learn to worship. Now, then we see in verse 26, the meek shall eat and be satisfied. Now, as we've said, meekness is not a weakness, as it has been said a million times. The idea is that of gentleness, uh, even disciplined uh, of mind and and heart. But the meek shall eat and be satisfied. The 
idea here is that the meek will be strengthened and satisfied by God and in God. Now this has a future fulfillment as well when Christ returns. What's going to take place? Well, Israel will be finally, truly satisfied and along with you and I who are in Christ. There will be no satisfaction as long as we live on this earth in this flesh. Uh, this flesh is never satisfied. This world is never satisfied. What we find is that it always desires and wants more and more and more, and yet here by faith, you and I must find that Christ alone can satisfy our hearts. And in that day of the millennial kingdom and on to the eternal kingdom, we will see that it is Jesus alone that will eternally satisfy us throughout the ages. Now, uh, verse 26, the meek shall be satisfied. This as well pictures the life of the future millennial kingdom for believers. Uh, turn with me for just a moment to see Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to see the blessings and benefits for those in Christ during His future earthly reign. Now, these are the blessings that are pronounced upon those who are there on that day by faith. But then as well, these are the benefits that we get to enjoy in that day. And so these certainly have, yes, a, a understanding, Matthew 5, uh, for uh, for the Jewish people, but it was to remind them of that if they remain and abide faithful, that these are the promises, the blessings, the benefits that they will get to enjoy when Christ returns and, and establishes His kingdom. Now remember, up to this point, the kingdom was still being offered in Matthew to the Jewish people, but they had rejected it one, uh, finally, but one day that kingdom will still yet be established because Christ will return after He has purified them, and, and we will get to rule and reign with Him, and you and I will get to enjoy what life on the earth will look like. And so... Uh, with me here. Uh, we won't get to dissect each one uh, in the way in which we, we ought to. Perhaps one day we'll be able to do a sermon series on this. But it says in verse number one, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. When he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice all these. Uh, blessed are, right? That's the pattern. Blessed, happy, complete, blessed are the blank because or for, and then there's going to be a future fulfillment that they will get to enjoy. When will that future fulfillment be? The coming day of Christ. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now remember, if this is for Jewish people who are coming out of the tribulation period and are accepting Christ at the kingdom, well, notice this. It means all the more. Why? Because they are going to mourn like none others. They will mourn their own sinfulness, how they had rejected the Lord for all those centuries and millennia. They will mourn over the loss of life that has just taken place throughout the, the tribulation period. Furthermore, verse number 5, here's where this leads us to, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And they're going to inherit the earth and they shall be satisfied with it. They, it will be a reward for them. We see then as well, he goes on, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Our salvation and the Jewish people's salvation, because all of salvation is by the mercy of God. So therefore, what we find is that those who, uh, those who uh, are merciful, they shall obtain mercy. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now that is the beauty of the coming ages of the kingdom period and the eternal kingdom where we will see our God Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say uh, all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, being exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which went before you. And notice, Jesus is speaking here in Matthew 5 to who? The Jewish people. And so as we see Psalm 22 uh, verses 23-31 being a fulfillment coming when Christ returns, that passage now means all the more. Wouldn't you agree? Now as we see all this, this truth would encourage David. It would encourage us. And it's going to encourage the Jewish people when we uh, uh, see that we've come out and been delivered out of all afflictions and we see the Lord, knowing that one day every affliction, every sorrow, every pain will one day cease. Now I've got to hurry here through uh, verse 26 through 31, we continue to see, well, verse 27 down through 31. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. Here we not only have seen God's, uh, the praise for God's response, but now we see the praise for God's reign. 
Uh, we sing songs about this come Christmas time as well, that He reigns, uh, that, that He is the King, that He was born King of Israel, born as the King of Israel, right? The whole thing. We see that we worship our Savior King, but we see this established in this passage and it will be fulfilled at that coming day where Christ will rule and reign in that millennial kingdom as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what's written upon Him when He comes back in Revelation 19 to then establish His kingdom. So, we find that He is the Sovereign Lord and King of all. Now, Verses 26 and 27 show us the kingship and sovereign lordship of Christ over the nations. It is seen. Now you say, well, uh, don't the nations right now belong to the devil? Well, yes, in a sense, he's been given uh, power over the nations in the sense that he is called the prince, uh, a power of the air that he uh, goes to and fro. Uh, he uh, and his, uh, his, his uh, demonic hordes, uh, they seek to uh, distract uh, the world and, and to uh, divide it up and to prepare for what is to come. But nevertheless, we find that even in all that, God yet still reigns today, and yesterday, and tomorrow, and forever, and forever. There's never been a moment in time uh, in human history where God has not ruled and reigned. We sometimes think that there have been moments and times in the life of Israel, or even in the life of Christ, or in the life of David, or in your life, or in my life, or in the life of the world, where somehow he has been off of the throne and has not known what's going on or has not been in control, there has never been a time where God was not in complete control. Either God is God all the time, or he's not God at all. And because he is God, he is God all the time. And because he is God, all things, every atom, every molecule belongs to him, and he knows each one by name, for He holds it all together. He did not merely create everything, but He sustains everything. And the reason why even the evil, wicked men of the day are able to do what they do is because the Lord allows them breath in their lungs. So God is King. Always has been. Always will be. The fact that we often see this though today is, is this what we see is that we understand theologically that He is King that He is sovereign, that He is Lord. The issue is a mind that knows that theologically, but a heart that does not believe it by faith will not submit to Him. We need hearts that fear Him, that praise Him, that glorify Him. Verse 23, that leads us to humbly have Him as the Lord of our life. Now, at the second coming of Christ, He will take the reins to usher in His kingdom, which will have no ending. The nations, especially Israel, will turn to Him in faith, he will be worshipped for who He is and what He has done and for His kingship over all places and people of the earth. Philippians chapter 2 tells us this, "...who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself no reputation, took upon Him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow." of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue, what does every mean? Every, should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. As Spurgeon asked uh, so, so aptly, he says, Is Christ the great King satisfied to settle down in a corner of the world as a ruler over one scanty province? No. He is not merely a King of kings, He is the King of kings. He is not merely a Lord amongst lords. He is the Lord. He is Christ, the King and Lord of all. There is not one molecule outside of His authority. There in that day of the millennial kingdom, there will not be one person alive or dead for that matter that will not be under His authority and rule and lordship. You and I today as believers... We say things here in the South, and this is uh, here, here's what happens. Everyone knows how to say this in the South as far as, hey, are you Christian? Are you saved? Yep, you, uh, what do you believe? Well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Right? We, we've said that, and we go, okay, well, we, then we move on our way. We go, well, they know how to say that, so I guess they must believe it. Saying it and believing it are two different things. And we've got to understand here that most of us today, the average Christian has Jesus Christ as their Savior. Right? 
You can't be a true Christian, a born-again believer, without having Christ as your Savior. The issue today of the modern church is this, that Christ is not Lord of our life. We are grateful that He has saved us. We are grateful that our sins are forgiven and bought and paid for. We are grateful that we're not going to go to hell. But we are not so grateful that He is the Lord of our life both now and forever. We want Him to be Lord when things are you know, going bad because we want Him to Lord over us and fix things for us and save us from it. But we must understand that every moment of our life is now belonging to Him. It belongs to Him. Our life is not our own. Our life is hid with Christ and God. And so therefore, we will glorify Him because all of our life, our breath, even our, our death, it belongs to Christ the King. He is Lord of all. Now, the kingship and kingdom, notice it says it belongs to the Lord. It is His. Revelation chapter 1 tells us this. In verse number 4 through 8, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from Him which is, which was, and which is to come. Now, why is that important? Because He is the great I Am. He is the one who had no beginning, and He is the one who has no ending because He is the beginning and the ending. He is the Alpha and the Omega, as we'll see. He says, uh, and from the seven spirits which are before His throne, this is to show His, his omniscience, His, uh, his uh, uh, omnipotence. This is His almighty, all-knowledgeable power that He is. This is all that He is, all that He does. And it says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, right? He is the first fruits of the dead, uh, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father to be uh, to, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Not just glory, but dominion. Why? Because all things are under his dominion and his control. And ha uh, it says, And behold, he cometh with the clouds. Every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. When is that? Is that the rapture? No. That's the second coming. That's what we've been talking about in Psalm 22, and there in Matthew 5. This is when Christ comes back to the earth to reign. He has come, been born of a virgin, now wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Born, why? To ultimately redeem us through his death and resurrection. But we find that when He returns again, He's not coming to redeem. He's coming to restore and to reign. He then says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. He is the Lord and there is none else. He will not share His glory with another, and nor is there any other worthy to share glory with Him. And this makes it all the more sweet for you and I, dear believers, that we are told that we will be kings and priests unto God forever. Who are we that we would get to share and take part of His glory? That is the beauty of what the kingdom will be for us. We deserve none of it, and yet by His mercy, not only do we get to be there, but we get to partake and share in the glory of His kingdom and His reign. Now in verses 29-31, through 31, and I've got to hurry. I've got five minutes. The worship of Jesus as the Lamb and Lord who is King will endure eternally. It will not end. Now, by the way, from the creation of all things and before all things, the moment He made the angelic world and realm, uh, His worship has, uh, uh, has uh, been unending and unceasing. For every saint of God that has gone on to be with Him, they have begun to worship Him with a pure heart and pure motives, for the very first time in their life, completely uh, to, to praise Him and to glorify Him in His presence, His praise will never end. It will never cease. Nor should it. There's not going to be a halftime in heaven. You ever thought about that? There's not going to be a timeout. Uh, there's not going to be a, a moment where anyone can throw in and uh, a flag and review something. There's never going to be a time where there's going to be a, a moment throughout all of eternity for 10,000 years and then 100,000 years and then a million years and then a hundred million years and then a billion years and then a trillion years and then whatever comes after trillion and I don't think anyone actually knows what we find is that forever and forever He will reign. Notice this. In verse number 29 it says, None can keep alive his own soul. We know this to be true. It is Christ alone that holds the keys 
to life and death. Only Jesus was the only one who had this power. You and I do not have power over life and death, let alone even holding on or keeping alive our own soul. We are simply alive because of His mercy and His grace and His very good, lo- His great love toward us. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18 describe us where Jesus is saying that it is He who lays down His life and it is He who will take it up again that no man takes it from Him. He is delivered over and He delivers His own uh, life to those who would take it. Here's what we else see as we bring this to a close. It says, They that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before Him. Now what does it mean, the fat upon the earth? This isn't talking about the huskies. Those those who've got a little extra weight or or, or holiday weight. No, this is not talking about that. It's talking about those who are rich. And He says, what about the, the rich and who? They that go down to the dust idea is rich and poor and everything in between will bow before the king it does not matter how wealthy you are in this world you could be the poorest of poor but if you know christ you've are you are richer eternally more than anyone else and it does not matter if you are rich in this earth if you know christ that is your richness that is the fat thereof that is everything that you could ever have in in want and desire We find that it is His blood alone that is able to save the rich and the poor and to make them all one body, one bride, one fold in Christ. All who are saved by grace through faith have seen themselves as poor and must see themselves as poor. You do not come to Christ unless you see yourself as poor and needy. As a matter of fact, that's the very reason why Jesus says it's going to be awfully hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, He says it's going to be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter. Now here, there are many folks who look at that and they say, well, it talked about a a gate that camels would would climb through. Well, you know what? I think what Jesus is actually just saying is this. You take the eye of a needle and a camel, it's easier for it to fit through than for an actual rich person to enter in. Why? Because we must see ourselves as poor and needy in order to come to Christ. This takes humility and it is only seen by the grace of God as we put our faith and trust in Him alone. Now as we finish off in verse 30, 30 and 31. Notice he says, A seed shall serve him, it shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. This will be among the nations. This will be throughout eternity. This will be throughout the kingdom period and into the eternal kingdom. Throughout the generations of the millennial age, Christ will be praised, served, and have his word, work, and will be sent throughout the nations. One commentator writes, Each generation will join in the telling of the story of redemption and of His kingship and will. In the process of transmitting it, add what God has done for them. This is the essence of redemptive history. That God has redeemed me, and now I'm going to tell someone how they can be redeemed, and how God redeemed me, and why God redeemed me, and how great He is for redeeming me. And we pass it on to the generations, and to the generations, and to the generations, forever and forever. The generations will tell of the greatness and glory of Almighty God for His great redemption for us. Boyce writes, Just before He died, Jesus cried out, It is finished, John 19.30. This is a quotation from the last verse of Psalm 22. In our text, that verse reads, uh, He hath done this. Uh, But what we see is that there is no object for the verb in Hebrew. And it can equally well be translated, It is finished. Why? At the end of all things, when Christ returns, the little kingdom, The same could be said as he cries, a last final cry, if you will, on the cross, to tell us that it is finished. What was finished? It was paid in full. The the ransom for our our sins, our redemption, the act and, and the work that Christ needed to do to accomplish our salvation, it was complete. And here's what we see. On that day that Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, what will the nations What will the Jewish people, what will you and I declare? He hath done this. It's finished. The judgment is done. The purification, uh, our salvation, the redemption of national Israel, it is done and it's done by Him, through Him, and for Him. So from the fourth cry in verse number one on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the final cry, it is finished in verse 31. What we see is that He is faithful to deliver His people 
through the work of redemption. Psalm 22 could be summarized in two things. Christ is the suffering servant and Savior for man. And two, Christ is the sovereign eternal King. And You and I see that God Almighty and the Lord Jesus Christ is these things, has always been these things, whether He was suffering on the cross or whether He's reigning in Jerusalem after He comes back with you and I along with Him. What we find is that you and I now today in the world that we live in, we must sing this song of praise for who God is, for what He has done, past, present, and await that future day with Him where all this will be fulfilled and we will not only reign with Christ and enjoy His kingdom, but we will rejoice in Christ forever and forever. Let us pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. We're grateful for the the truths found in it. We're grateful for that fulfillment that will come one day in Christ. I pray that we would long and look forward to that day and that we would live awaiting and be prepared for such uh, that day to come. But nevertheless, we ask that tonight that You would help us to meditate upon Your Word as we leave from this place that You would bless the dear family as they travel and as they continue to prepare uh, their hearts for, for mission work and what You've called them to. We pray that You would bless them, encourage them, strengthen them. And Lord, uh, help us as a church as we end this year, Lord, to simply look to You for all things. We thank You, God, uh, for all that You are and all that You've done. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all have a blessed